Welcome back to Embodied Wellness Radio, everybody. My name is Denon Maximchuk, and today I'm going to be taking you through a solo sode where I'm going to be talking about glyphosate, chemical farming, and gut health, and kind of how it all ties together. This episode is a bit heavy, but I try to keep it as positive as we can towards the end to show you, you know, there's still hope. Because we're in a bit of a conundrum when it comes to the quality of our human food supply, especially when it comes to the topic of pesticides and herbicides on our food. On one hand, we literally can't feed the entire planet's population of 7.7 billion people on purely organic food. It's literally impossible. And anytime the government, such as just yesterday when the Canadian government, uh, Trudeau's government said that uh, they want to get harder on their campaign of lowering the pesticide use in the country, it was met with an immediate uproar from the agricultural and farming community. Farmers know that we've weakened the plants to the point where only a small amount will survive without the use of pesticides and herbicides, which I'm going to explain to you a little bit later on how that happened. Yet, especially with the glaring evidence that I'm going to present to you today, It also seems that right now of all times, we also need to take as much action as we can to educate ourselves and devise a plan at the very least to start within our own homes and then continuing it outwards on how we can make the best swaps and adjustments in our products and our foods to lower the accumulation of what feels like a constant barrage of like this toxic load that's being presented to us in all the products and food supplies that we buy. So I've been droning on about the chemical farming and the chemical use in our ecosystem since 2017 after listening to my first piece of content featuring Dr. Zach Bush, who many of you might be familiar with. If not, a lot of this information that I'm going to be talking about today is going to be referenced from him, and I will be also linking to a bunch of his stuff in the podcast notes. Now, Dr. Zach Bush specializes in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care, and was he was speaking about hydration and gut health uh, for specifically, it was talking about muscle mass and like glutathione production in the body in the episode that I was first listening to many, many years ago. And in that podcast, many years ago, Dr. Zach Bush exposed me to the truth about uh, how the chemicals on our food and in our water and even in the air are hindering our performance, longevity, and perhaps uh, can even be a large reason for the continuing and growing mental health pandemic. So I really hope this episode leaves a mark in your mind. And although some of the topics I might cover today uh, might have you needing to pause process and reflect as I know I have for many years throughout this topic. I do hope that the information sticks with you. And since I'm not selling you anything, if it does provide you with insight and value, I kindly ask that you do please share it with your, you know, your sphere of influence and drop us a five star review. And if you really loved it, subscribing for more awesome cost free content in the future, because that is how we grow the show and try to reach more ears. And especially with this topic that I'm going to be talking about today, I think this is an important one to share with that sphere of influence around you. So without further ado, let's begin. So what we know about the gut and a person's gut health is that it's essentially one of the most critical breaking points between a healthy and an unhealthy human. Now, I understand that's a humongous generalization and a really, honestly, way too easy and quick way to simplify an extremely in-depth topic, but it does need to be brought up because in the past 30 years, we've seen illness within the human population increase to a rate at which if we were a species of fish, we might even be called an endangered species. In the 1980s, there was an uptick in illnesses, but something that really began to happen was in the 1990s, and this really started to change the course of what we know as world health. Suddenly, autism skyrocketed in in 1995 from, uh, originally it was one in every 1,000 kids were being diagnosed, and then only five years later, in uh, the year 2000, all of a sudden the numbers went from one in 500, it doubled from one in 1,000 to one in 500. Now, in 2022, where one in every 36 kids are being diagnosed on the autism spectrum. 
That is a tremendous increase from only in 1995, one in a thousand to now one in 36. At this rate, by 2035, one in three kids are projected to have autism. And over time, this will completely destabilize and cripple our society as well as the financial system. And it's not just autism. Alzheimer's and dementia, Parkinson's disease, childhood bipolar disease, and celiac disease, among many others, steeply rose at an alarming rate, specifically, well, some started in the 1980s, but an awfully strange and eerily coincidental space uh, and, and sudden spike of these illnesses started to synchronize in the mid-1990s. So before I get into any speculation as to how this would have happened and any data to support that, let's take a, a step even further back into history, specifically into the early 1900s. And when you really think about it, that's not actually, that's not that long ago. That's only like a person and a bit ago. But we first need to understand that crop rotations, uh, if anybody's ever worked on a farm, I worked on a farm when I was like 13. It was an interesting experience. It was a chicken farm, but I did a lot of like work in the blueberry bushes. And I do, I do know a little bit about farming and I grew up, my parents always had gardens, which is a blessing because now I cannot wait to have a property where I can just fill it with gardens. We've been for thousands of years, we knew that rotating crops is like the, one of the most important things for ensuring that we can feed a community in a, in a village of people. And it's essentially like the, the practice of planting different crops season after season or year after year on the same plot of land to improve the soil health. It optimizes the nutrients in the soil and helps to combat against pests and weeds. So maybe on one plot of land, one year you'll have blueberries and on the next you might do uh, broccoli, for example. But you're rotating those crops on that land so there's different nutrients being used in the soil. So the problem is that it's far too economical to do what's called monocropping, which we hear a lot about nowadays in, in big like in big industry farming, which is essentially the method of only ever planting a single harvest on the same crop of land year after year after year. So you will plant like the most profitable crop, for example, let's say corn or soy, using the same seeds, the same machinery, the same growing methods, and the same pest control um, that you would be using across the entire farmland year after year, therefore like creating a replicatable and more profitable process. So back in the early 1900s, with the onset of a severe economic depression, you know, the Great Depression, the time before the war, almost all farmers were really resorted to this practice of monocropping for maximum profits. However, combined with the extended droughts and the unusually high temperatures that was in the early 1900s, Combined with the poor agricultural practices and the dead soil, when the wind picked up, this is what caused the, um, the, the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. So the Dust Bowl actually continued until 1936 with many people in the process starving. Obviously, the land was dead. The soil was dead. You couldn't plant things. Um, and the Great Depression itself continued until 1939. That's when World War II started. So not a great time in history. And it you look at this and you could really see, hmm, honestly, uh, we, we could definitely fall back into the same process. So after the war, there was so much leftover petroleum from the war industry that scientists learned how to convert many of the compounds within the petroleum into the world's first chemical-based fertilizers. So they then took these fertilizers out to the farmers who already couldn't keep their crops alive due to poor farming practices and some of the environmental factors that they were also faced with. And then they showed the farmers how that they could use these chemicals to keep their farms alive. And it worked. And that's actually chemical fertilizers were a breakthrough, which then obviously triggered the green revolution in the 1960s. Plants were flourishing, but what we didn't know is that plants weren't the same. Plants lacked the nutrients that they once had. And not only that, but the plants were also weak. 
Much like how humans have an immune system, plants do as well. So now we've got this green revolution happening. We've got plants back in the fields and people are starting to eat again, but now we're faced with one issue. The plants are weak. There's weeds creeping in and the insects and the pests are beginning to flourish all over the plants, eating the plants, and they began to kill them. So when this starts happening, the chemical companies then begin approaching the farmers again, this time with pesticide sprays and different weed killers that they can then use in conjunction with the chemical fertilizers to keep the farms running. And although this is morally wrong, yet a brilliant move that is, you know, making them billions and billions of dollars hand over fist to this very day and age, the chemical fertilizer companies essentially created a dependency for the farmers and like a vicious cycle to continue buying all these chemicals and the sprays in order to keep the plants alive. I don't actually know if if what they knew at the time, if they knew it would be morally wrong. However, it has led obviously into this incredible business opportunity for them. It, and it's true, even to this now day and age, which I'll talk about later, we are stuck in this, this vicious cycle. And yeah, it's keeping crops alive, but it may also be killing us at the same time. So we'll talk about that more in a second. So shortly after 1974, glyphosate, which I'll tell you a bit more in a second, was first registered for use in the U.S., patented by the Monsanto Company. Now, this is an American agrochemical and agricultural biotechnology corporation, aka a huge-ass chemical company. Now, what is glyphosate? You've heard glyphosate a lot in the news recently. It's maybe even popping up on social media, but glyphosate is the active water-soluble ingredient found in the ready-to-use chemical spray product Roundup, as well as many other ready-to-use chemical spray products. In the U.S. alone, it's used in over 750 products. Glyphosate is an herbicide, and it's essentially just used to kill weeds and grasses. And in 1992, note the date... In 1992, it began being used as a desiccant to dry and accelerate the ripening of fruits and vegetables before harvest. Now, as of right now in present time, most crops around the world have been or are being genetically modified to become resistant to glyphosate. And that's partly because like, the estimated 4.5 billion pounds of glyphosate is used worldwide on our food supply, meaning the plants have no choice, but we have to do something to them so that they can become resistant to it so they don't continuously become weak. I don't know if that's going to work. We'll see what happens in the future. But I remember when I was young and I was in school uh, and my mom, who, by the way, was way ahead of the curve on uh, most health related topics. Shout out to Barb. Uh, she was visibly upset when I told her we couldn't go outside and play on the field at lunch one day because they were spraying something on the field. She knew what was up. And to this day, I still get upset when I see city workers and trucks with massive reservoirs on the back spraying down the highway or the trees or even my neighbor, bless his soul, tending to his garden with Roundup. As soon as I start to hear that sound in the garden, I run over the windows, the doors, shut them, turn on the air purifier. And that's not because I'm some irrational anxiety, you know, freak about out health. I, I mean, a little bit, but... It's really due to the fact that because we pour, like obviously, like I said, that nearly there's 5 billion tons of it onto the planet each year, 75% of the air that we breathe and the water that we use is contaminated with glyphosate. Now, as I mentioned before, glyphosate is water soluble, which means it dissolves effortlessly into water. So when we pour it into the earth, as it binds with the water and evaporates into the air and then into the clouds, it then rains back down onto the earth. And as humans, we obviously rely on water. Remember, water makes up about 55% of the human body. Sorry, the female body, I should say. Men, it's about 60%. You can obviously start to figure it out yourself that if water makes up 55 to 60% of the body and then we introduce this water-soluble chemical 
uh, into the body that's been shown in investigations that glyphosate can cross and affect the blood-brain barrier and then cause various types of like short-term and long-term disturbances in the human nervous system, this can be a problem, right? So although the body contains over 20,000 chemicals, the kind of harmonic symphony that can be slowly set off by a few bad instruments will start to be in play when we start to introduce things that like don't belong in the symphony. Now, I've explained this before, and I'll mention it again. Like if you picture a beautiful symphony playing, in this case, there's 20,000 instruments, right? But in the back, we introduce this whiny instrument that is just belting out as loud as it can, completely offbeat and an entirely wrong pitch. You know, we might not notice that instrument over the other 20,000 instruments playing. In fact, you probably won't. But if that one instrument eventually annoys all the surrounding ones, they might get angry, stop playing and try to deal with the invader, right? Because he sucks. He's ruining, he's ruining the presentation. Now, as they move offbeat, the loud and rude instrument slowly becomes louder and louder and louder. And this may take a long time, but eventually the symphony may begin to just completely fall apart, really. Now, this is obviously an oversimplified example. However, it may help to give a visual as to like the effect that these unnecessary chemicals could be, especially when given the fact that, you know, glyphosate is water soluble and our body's 55 to 60% water, this could have a pretty profound effect. So in reality, this is what happens. This is a little sciencey. Some of you might get it, some of you might not. But among other issues, like glyphosate has been shown to disrupt the detoxification pathways, starting by lowering the sulfate in your body. Now, this creates a cascade of negative effects. Sulfate is critical as it helps to produce glutathione, which you might have heard of that before. Now, glutathione is essentially your body's like detoxifying superstar against xenobiotics, which are like simply harmful environmental compounds, uh, such as like heavy metals, which we spoke about on episode 15, as well as pesticides and herbicides. Now, here's what's interesting. When glyphosate was first registered back in the use in 1974, it was patented as an antibiotic drug, claiming the now widely used weed killer as a medicine, not obviously a, a, like a weed killer. Now, I'll try to keep this as simple as I can, but they knew that they could call it an antibiotic drug of sorts because it functions to block enzymes in plants, therefore killing specific plants such as weeds, it's meant to kill, even though it's obviously going to be affecting the surrounding plants, hence why um, they're trying to like modify many of the plants in our environments to become glyphosate resistant. So this matters because if enzyme pathways are being blocked in plants, it's called the shikimate pathway, this enzyme pathway, the amino acids in these plants are being blocked by the glyphosate. Now, these essential amino acids are essential because we have to get them from our food. Our body doesn't have shikimate pathways that can help create them, right? So if we begin to lack these essential amino acids in our diet, this will affect thousands of the protein structures within the body, which are the building blocks, literally, of our body. So you might ask, okay, so... In 1992, glyphosate was starting to use commercially on crops to, to help ripen them. But is this just happenstance that they happen to coincide at the exact same time as this huge spike in a lot of health issues, right? Now, if you ask that question, I ask the same thing. In the podcast notes, I've put up a graph of the 2013 and estimated agriculture use of glyphosate, which you're going to see on this graph from 1992, the use of glyphosate on which crops and their substantial increase over time. So you can see each year how much glyphosate was used, estimated, on each of these crops. And you can see it basically go up on like a 60 to 7 degree, uh, 60 to 70 degree uh, incline. It's using, they're using more exponentially every year, essentially, right? 
But for example, looking at this next graph here, where they're looking at the use of uh, glyphosate applied to corn and soy crops from 1991 to 2010. And on this graph, there's another line which plots the number of children from 1991 to 2010 between the ages of 6 and 21 years old with autism, plotted against the use of Roundup on the corn and soy. And the line matches perfectly. Every single year, the more glyphosate used is perfectly proportionate to the increases in autism. Next, I have a graph here that's illustrating the same plot line measured against uh, the deaths from senile dementia. And not shockingly, the data is perfectly aligned, plotted an increase of senile dementia is exactly proportionate to the use of glyphosate. And again, here's a, a graph of Parkinson's and another of diabetes, both also matching the use of glyphosate. Now, I want to make sure I give credit again. Uh, almost all this information has been documented for years by Zach Bush and these graphs I borrowed from a few presentations of his and I will link to these as well in the podcast notes. Now, although these all may look like proof, again, it could all just be happenstance and it could be the result of a completely missing link and something else that was thrown into the system at the time. I kind of doubt that. But thankfully, back in 2012, uh, Dr. Zach Bush and colleague Dr. John Gildia, who specializes in molecular biology and genetics and is the chief science advisor of the University of Virginia, those guys were working on chemotherapy developments. And to make a long story short, along with the studies coming out during the time, they realized that Although the target of glyphosate is to target the enzymes of the shikimate pathway and theoretically shouldn't harm humans since we don't have the shikimate pathway within our own cells, the data was beginning to show that there was clear off-target effects and increased permeability of the gut membrane, harming the tight junctions, which if you've, anybody who follows Sarah, you've heard her talk about all the many digestive path, uh, pathways, right? You know about the tight junctions in the gut and how um, leaky gut happens, right? So... What they found is that the glyphosate, one of the off-target effects of it is it increased the permeability of the gut membrane, harming these tight junctions and all these areas that separate the pathogen, the toxins, and the microorganisms, and all of the allergens from entering our bloodstream. And these tight junctions can also be found in, you guessed it, our brain, which again, when we compare the data of the sudden onset of neurological issues that I told you about from all the graphs before, you know, for from the autism, uh, maybe MS, autoimmune diseases, uh, Alzheimer's suddenly increasing. I don't think this is really arguable anymore. So yes, the data does indicate that exposure to high levels of glyphosate may result in neurological damage uh, via the openings of the blood-brain barrier and the gut barrier as well, causing more than just neurological damage, but other cellular damage within the body. Now, I've tried to be uh, as positive as I can with this topic, even though it might seem like a huge downer, because you might be left saying, well, what, like, what am I supposed to do, right? So in order to provide a little bit of levity and hope, um, just so you know, there is action being taken by our planet and our legal system, sort of, sort of, I say. <laughs> Let's start with the planet. Luckily, our planet has the bacteria and the fungi that can help to break down and digest this toxic chemical being glyphosate. Um, the issue is that if we just cold turkey stopped spraying like the four to five billion tons of glyphosate, which we're pouring into the planet every year right now, it would take about 50 years estimated for the levels to return to a below toxic level. It's a long time, man. 50 years is a long time. Unfortunately for our generation, I don't think there's much like help for us with that. However, we do have to stand up and take responsibility for our children and our children's children. 
at the moment, glyphosate is, it's really just a part of our ecosystem. We can't wash it out or cook it out because like the small amounts that would be in our food, uh, they become absorbed into it, right? Uh, not just that, but even like, for example, animals, they eat the grass, which glyphosate would be on, and that's just now into their system as well. So you can, like, for example, if it's just like sprayed on an apple, like, I mean, definitely wash your apples, right? But you, you can't really take um, into account what's what would be absorbed into the plant itself. So in that case, now is the time to start putting your money where your mouth is and choose to only buy foods that are certified organic. This is a bit of a blurry line sometimes, but even just starting that process can still help. The less and less that they like are selling or inorganic products on the shelves, the less and less that they're going to make. So at the end of the day, your money does talk. You know, look for organic labels um, in the grocery store. And even if, if you're in a community or you're not very far from it, look for farms that even pride themselves of not using glyphosate and go buy directly from them. I know one of the small farms where I used to live in, in Victoria boasted about how they were all glyphosate free and they used ladybugs inside their greenhouses to help reduce the pests. So for that, I gave them my business. I don't also think you should be afraid to even reach out to farms in your area and straight up ask what pesticides or herbicides do you use and is your farm glyphosate free? You know, the market always wins. So you need to speak up and ask for what you want at the end of the day, right? They don't deserve your money unless you should think you should give them their money. It doesn't work like that. So I'm not saying be rude, but you should be very direct. It's your health, you know, and your family's health. So next, legal action is being taken, albeit very slow. And let's be honest, fighting multi-billion dollar corporations with endless pockets in the court system is a game that they're going to be willing to drag on like forever. So an example of, of these lengthy pockets and the lengths that they will go to, on September 14th, 2016, the Bayer Corporation purchased Monsanto for $63 billion, which although that might seem like a lot of money, and honestly, it's really hard for most of us to like conceptualize that, that amount of money, what they bought them for was really a fraction of their estimated value. And the reason for this is because they knew the lawsuits had begun and Bayer would have to take on those lawsuits when they bought the company. So as expected, based on the tens of thousands of claims linking Roundup to cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer and many more things, the lawsuits came and Bayer was ready. I don't have any like graphs or statistics specifically on the cases of the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer, um, but tens of thousands of cases. I mean, that's, that should be enough right there, right? So in 2010, Bayer agreed to pay out $10 billion worth of settlements to the tens and thousands of claims. All while, of course, the product is still on shelves everywhere. You can pretty much go to anywhere you want and you're going to find these products or glyphosate ready to use products, um, you know, home hardware, Home Depot, all these places, right? Um, and it's still sold in bulk in the agricultural industry. So the settlement was reported by the New York Times to have covered an estimated of 95,000 cases. And as of 2020, uh, it still included over a billion dollars of potential future claims for the consumers who may develop the rare form of cancer, while there are still 26,000 claims in the tube ready to go. So what am I saying by that? What I'm saying is that our government and lawmakers are not going to make the changes that we need to make happen, as it seems like <laughs> their number one goal seems to be like create a weak society, sick and numbed down by entertainment and drugs, so that they have to rely on government handouts to sustain themselves while, you know, the dictatorship rule only grows stronger. Maybe that's just my slightly cynical point of view, but kind of seems like that's like what they're pushing for. 
Also in 2020, a California judge overrode the Prop 65 Act, which if you've listened to episode 15 to 17, you'd know how strict the Prop 65 Act was um, or still is. But the judge overrode that there needs to be warning labels on pesticide products such as Roundup, which boggles my mind. The FDA website under the glyphosate Q&A section even says, as part of a glyphosate registration review, the EPA issued a draft human risk assessment for glyphosate, which concluded that glyphosate is not likely to be a carcinogenic cancer-causing in humans. But on a positive note, in early 2022, the mayor of Montreal was on record saying that stores selling glyphosate will be fined. However, it can still be found uh, on store shelves in Montreal, so I'd like to see a little more movement on that. That's a lot. Now, to be completely transparent with you, I'm not really sure what the steps are moving forward. On one hand, if the data is correct, the continued use of these chemicals will bring society to its knees in the coming 40 to 100-ish estimated years, right? However, there's also a huge possibility that by removing these crutches that are essentially keeping these large crops alive and feeding much of the population, it also poses the risk of mass starvation. So it seems like no matter which direction, it has to get worse before it will inevitably get better. And I mean, like the first thought that pops into my head right now as I kind of just like stream my consciousness to you um, is that if we um, if we remove the, you know, the majority of these chemicals from our environment, even if we cut it cold turkey right now, it seems like for a short period of time in the future, we would have a lack of crops. We would have a lack of ability to food a lot of people. But I just think that, and maybe this is just me and maybe I'm, I'm not right on this, but we have enough technological advancements made right now and we can still continue to make technological advancements to avoid mass famine, at least on a nutritional human level, um, by setting up like uh, nutritional interventions and more advanced supplementation techniques for the population so that when the food supply inevitably lowers, we at least have something to kind of fall back on for a short-term sacrifice uh, in order to succeed um, the, the like the reduction of this in our in our communities, right? So I do think that that short-term sacrifice to succeed for our children's and grandchildren's generations in order to re-strengthen the soil and the plants, you know, re-strengthen the plants and allow them to readapt to a, an environment and a climate without glyphosate is probably one of the most important things in order for humanity to continue to thrive for thousands of years to come. And it, it, it does seem like the most humane way to move forward rather than to continue with this chemical process, killing our soil, killing our land, and killing each other uh, in the process. At the end of the day, like in all things, um, we as people need to take responsibility for our own livelihoods and use our wallets to pursue the direct world that we want to build, right? Now, I remember even 10 years ago, organic food was barely part of the conversation and you had to go to like a little tiny small section of the grocery store in order to get a couple of those radishes maybe <laughs> that were uh, certified organic, right? Now, I'm shocked every month when I go into the grocery store and I find more and more health forward options that are beginning to really take over grocery stores. Like I'm shocked at some of the things that I see. So we're starting to make a difference. A really awesome, cool note that gives me a hope is that there was leaked data from inside the Monsanto Corporation's marketing analysis department before they were sold by Bayer. And it said that right now, some communities are maybe only operating on like 1% organic purchases, while others are creeping up to 4 and 5% of the food being sold organic. Now, from these alleged leaks, 
if the world gets up to 16% of the food being sold uh, fully organic without the use of glyphosate and like all the other pesticides and herbicides, Bayer, which bought Monsanto, will lose its financial stability. So now is the time for us to learn how to build our own greenhouses, learn how to plant and tend to our own food. And even if you just start with a couple like tomato plants on your deck in the sun, right? Start small, but start taking the action on what you need to put into your body. At least you know what you're putting in now, right? A rising tide raises all ships is kind of like I always say. So although the episode today was very heavy, <laughs> I know, I understand. It might might feel like a bit of a downer. And I know it is, is a lot to process. I know for me, I kind of like sat down in silence for a little bit thinking it through when I first started to learn about this. But I do hope it helps you kind of like change your perspective on the importance of organic, um, create a longer vision kind of like for the future and understand why it's so much more than just a trendy supermarket label for hipsters to talk about at Whole Foods. <laughs> um, so to spread the information, I kindly ask that you do please share this with your within your sphere of influence, your followers, maybe your community, drop in an email to a few friends, throw us a five star review. And if you really loved it, subscribing for more awesome and cost-free content along the way. Sarah and I will be back as the, you know, the dynamic duo that we are next week. And if you have questions or podcast guest requests, please reach out to us on Instagram at Embodied Wellness Co. Smile, breathe, and be grateful you're alive. And although there's challenges that we have to face, it's okay. We can approach that at least with positivity and love, and that should be the way we approach most things. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This podcast provides general information and discussions about health and related subjects. The information and other content provided in this podcast or any linked materials are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. If you or any other person has medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider and seek other professional medical treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you may have heard on this podcast or any link materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are of no relation to those of any academic, hospital, health practice, or other institution. Yeah.